You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. Uh, I am filling in for the typical host, our usual host, John Spencer, because he is, uh, for the second time in uh, in a couple of months, uh, moved to the other side of the table and and is uh, taking on the role of guest. Uh, John, welcome to, I guess, your podcast. And let's not do this too much because I know how much work you put into each episode. So I prefer if uh, if you keep doing it, not me. John, I, I really appreciate it. And, and I'm fine with doing these. It really helps me out. So... Um, you know, longtime listeners will know that typically you have a guest that talks about kind of one their perspective or their experience of one kind of uh, component or element of kind of the overall problem set of urban warfare. And we were chatting back and forth about, you know, we had an episode scheduled to release on Christmas Day. And we thought, well, why don't we do something kind of a little bit more fun? You had two years ago put together an urban warfare Christmas wish list with several items that uh, that you, you hoped Santa would bring to you. And you kind of uh, resurrected that and updated it this year and wrote an article that we published earlier this week called The 12 Days of Urban Warfare Christmas. So we're going to kind of talk through in a little bit more detail than you were able to go into in the article, each of those items, I understand, right? Yes. And, and let me start off by saying how difficult it is and how much you open yourself up to you know quarterbacking of okay, yeah, you created an urban warfare Christmas list, but how hard that is to do since urban operations covers the range of military operations. So are you talking about strictly offensive operations? Are you talking about, you know, counterinsurgency, counterterrorist operations? And when I originally did my list, you know, how difficult that is, is I can think of all kinds of capabilities. Some of them are specific to a type of mission. And this time I really tried to broaden my thought to think, more holistically across the range of military operations, since I do believe military forces will be deployed to urban areas more frequently than we ever have in the past. So, and one of the things that I find interesting about this list is if you did um, a more generic uh, wish, like infantry wish list or armor wish list or, um, you know, what have you, you the items that would be on there would be nice to haves, not need to haves necessarily, because, you know, let's face it, we have a huge defense budget and we have a lot of equipment. We have very good equipment. And for most missions, for most environments, we spend the money to get soldiers, the things that they that they need to have. So anything that might come on that list would just be things that you might like to have in addition to the things you need. Whereas urban's a little bit different because it's something that we are, you know, I, I think you, you would argue and I would agree that is something we're fundamentally pretty unprepared for. So these aren't just nice to have. These are, hey, if we want to succeed, kind of we need to have some of these items. Absolutely. And it really gets you down the road of optimization. So you can't have your military optimized only for urban. So that's why you have a capability set across the whole dot mil PF spectrum. That is, it is optimized, but not over-specialized even though I would love to see an urban warfare unit with specified equipment specifically for that environment. But like I said, um, that's really hard to do as a, a service, whether you're the army, the Marine Corps, the air force, you name it. But I do think that in general for preparing for what we know will be a likely operating environment, there are some capabilities that could be, let's say on the shelf immediately, you know, if they were that we just haven't, had for a while, haven't dusted off, or new capabilities that exist 
and just need to be rapidly modified to, you know, rapidly and greatly increase the effectiveness of military forces in urban areas. Well, that's a great segue into uh, the list. So let's get to it. It is again, the 12 days of urban warfare Christmas. I am tempted to ask you to put it to music and sing it in the form of a song, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, so the first one on the first day of Christmas, uh, your item is city watchers. What are city watchers and why do you want them? Uh, absolutely. And I think you probably know just cause you followed you, know, we talk so much that the genesis for this is actually multiple points of research or major gaps have been identified to me is, you know, the whole global outlook on the world, whether you're talking international relations, economics, military information, you name it, is nation-centered, nation-state-centered. Our organizations, the you know, Department of Defense, Department of State, again, is a framework under that of nation-states. So when you talk about understanding a country, usually you look towards an embassy and a country team to do that if you're not from there. And this is kind of from my experiences of traveling the world and visiting different major cities mega cities or not and talking to country teams and saying, well, do you have an expert in the city? Let's say for instance, we were in new Delhi talking to in India and say, who's your Mumbai person? No, we, we don't have that. We're focused on nation states. Or if you think about even within the military, the foreign area officer, you talk about the way the combatant commands work. And I think you remember one of the major points that really got me thinking about this idea of having people living in major cities around the world, you know, maybe they can be a part of an NBC country team, or maybe they're on this Rolodex of um, people that are studying or living in understanding cities, which is an immense task was I was at a conference and they had general Allen, a former combatant commander up there. And he's the one who said, you know, if we really want to understand, we, we need to assign resources to understanding cities you can call it in intelligence preparation of operating environment and build an intelligence portfolio. But I think it goes beyond intelligence gathering. And I've gotten already criticized about the city of watcher. I'm recommending espionage on different countries and I'm not, I'm, I'm recommending people living in these dense urban areas, which are more you're growing across the world and the likelihood of military operations in them are so great that there's this gap in people that understand those cities, everything from the power structures, the go, no go areas, the way the terrain really works, all this stuff that we would, as you know, better than me as an intelligence officer background, um, that we would surge to when the mission comes. But in many cases, in many times, that's almost too late, depending on what echelon of mission you're talking about or what forces that these city watchers would be advising. And I gave a, an example of the World War II coast watchers, which is different context, but very similar where these expats or people that were invested in to just live in those areas and understand them um, and you know report on activities, report on their understanding of the cities. I just think that it's a major need in the, especially in the Department of Defense. So if I'm, if I'm getting this right, this is not, you know, formally deploying members of the military or, uh, you know, government employees, it's taking advantage of an existing network of American expats who have some sort of tie to the United States, to the U.S. military, maybe retirees, uh, even reservists um, who could sort of 
you know, somewhere between informally and semi-formally provide uh, some of their sort of lend some of their expertise that comes just from living in a city, developing that intuitive sense of how a city functions, uh, how it, you know, how it, how, what its flows are that you can't get until you are on the ground and have spent time there. Is that correct? A hundred percent. And I think another vignette that was a tipping point for me on this idea was, and I think you remember this, we had a, you know, West Point cadet travel on one of his academic research trips to Taipei and wrote a, you spent four weeks there understanding, you know, just studying how the city works, how the everything, whatever framework you want to use. He used a different one and he wrote a report about it. And that report won a, you know, a U.S. Army writing award because of its detail in the way that the city of Taipei works, which is this major gap in, I think, broad understanding of a city. So exactly what you just said. Okay. So let's move on to uh, your second item, the second day of Christmas. Uh, it sounds somewhat similar. It's called Warfare Watchers. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So you know, somebody who is has the... So former army officers, in, or not former, but army officers and senior non-commissioned officers, um, small group with the freedom and the capability to deploy around the world and observe urban combat specifically. Um, there's been many different variations of this in, you know, wars across time. And I, you know, whether you're talking about SLA Marshall traveling around Vietnam or even the most recent asymmetric warfare group, which had a major aspect of this, of just deploying operational advisors into war, um, observing the unique nature of urban combat. You know, the AWG guys gave immediate salute, tactical solutions based on their expertise in war fighting and as this independent observer that I think that is a major gap. Um, I think we need we need a group like that that's specific to urban operations because it is changing. And we've seen this, whether it's tactical innovations of non-state actors in the urban environment or state actors using the unique nature of the population-centric urban contested areas um you talk russian aspects of disturbing the political environment of major urban areas um it's the the aspect of urban operations is changing and we need this group i think of warfare watchers to both help units that are getting deployed into those areas but also bring back that information to the army and spread it rapidly so this is something that um, we've talked about kind of in the offices at MWI a lot um, that you remember uh, our former director, uh, Colonel Liam Collins, uh, used to talk all the time. He, you know, he, it would boggle his mind that we didn't send observers to foreign wars where we could learn about them. And he, he mentioned the example of the um, early 20th century Russo-Japanese uh, war when we had U.S. Army officers on the ground observing and you know making firsthand observations on both sides with the russian military and the japanese military and sending that back and it was sort of informing the way the way the united states thought about war you know importantly only 10 years before world war one and we're not doing that now it strikes me that you know besides that as a on the whole being a good idea that urban warfare because it is something that we have kind of the the most tenuous grasp on you know in terms of its character uh that that's where it could have the most impact in your opinion then uh you know when you're thinking about this what is the mechanism for those observers you know who should they be who in the army should be sending them and what's the mechanism for bringing their observations back into the big operational army 
So, I mean, it has to be, you know, it, it has to be struck, you know, within the army structure, you know, nothing works as an independent organization. It has to fit in to the, I think Futures Command is a great home for this based on their responsibilities and the new amazing construct that we have with Futures Command and revolutionary aspect of looking at the future of warfare. Um, you need these people informing the institution as a whole, but also the ability to inform units deploying at the same time. You need people who, you know, senior officers and NCOs that have experience in warfare or they're just so senior, but also have had training in research collection methods. And I think that's why I kind of, you know, all the, the, you know, there's positive and negatives about SLA Marshall's history, but his ability to deploy into combat regions and interview both the soldiers facing the challenge and the enemy co captured combatants to get a clearer picture. Um, we have different mechanisms. We have an amazing uh, center of armor lesson learned that will send people out to interview units after the conflict usually, but they, they send them into the theater, but that's not necessarily the same thing that I'm imagining. I mean, a very small group of organizations with the independency, um, but uh, the command structure, and I think that's why it would be under futures command in my mind to deploy out to all these regions. I mean, from Syria to the Philippines to Ukraine, you name it. And I think Colonel Collins' vision of this was right. We've had it in the past. I will say that you'd have to do some research on what we had in the past. And was it episodic? Um, or was that that same officer who was observing urban combat in one theater, then being deployed into another one and, and you know, being able to show the continuities and the gaps in tactical capabilities? is an amazing for me i'm very high on my wish list okay so number three uh this one i find really fascinating you called it google war what is that yeah and i especially with your intelligence background yes um so again why my wish list kind of spans the spectrum of okay what type of missions you're talking about because it always matters but what mission is the most likely or what are you preparing your army for for me especially my own experiences in, you know, high intensity combat in Sadr City, Iraq to counterinsurgency, counterterrorist operations. You know, we build amazing intelligence organizations and I even had small level um, information gathering with, within myself. I, I created, you know, the, they created this company intelligence support team within my company because the information requirements were just so high, just a processing of that. But no matter what, if when I was deployed into urban areas and if I talked to people about future urban operations, what is the need? Like, what are the information requirements? Like, I don't know. I don't know it until I'm in there. And that ability to, so this Google Award is, you know, this open source search engine because these urban areas are, are so massive, you know, adaptive systems of these massive amounts of social economic infrastructure flows, I don't know what the information requirement is. And then many times I just needed to be able to ask Google a question like, where's the, the and I gave a couple examples and you, again, you have to go off of what mission we're doing. Uh, but I'm telling you, there's this giant gap of information need on some of the questions, completely unclassified, completely more like what I would enter into my phone for Google on Where's the the local gas station? In you, know, I should have had some great 
preparation before that. And it's part of what we do in, in our constant um, information gathering of the environment. But there's so many incidents I can think of where I just needed to type something into a search base. And maybe it gives me an answer I wasn't even thinking about. I think the graffiti one was a really good example for me too. And I, there's these amazing goggles that the army is deploying called the IVAS system, which has the ability to, I saw a video of it and I think it's ingenious where it shows, you know, some foreign writing on a wall and it translates it for you. But if I was to do that, there's still some information I have requirements I have that will take me time to process. Like, okay, if I took a picture of that graffiti and now I know what it says, but is there any meaning to that? Is there a gang associated with that? Is there some uh, historical story that's associated with that? And I think a Google search engine would do that for me. Is you, you know, oftentimes we enter something into Google and we ask a question and it doesn't answer it. It answers it. But if you scroll down a little bit more because of the the algorithm of the search engine, it gives me other topics that I wasn't even thinking about and closely related to my question. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know, what I like about it is that we talk a lot about when we talk about this, you know, this era of big data, um, talk about how, figuring out a way to capture more and more data, but this sort of acknowledges uh, a, a separate problem, which is there's a ton of data out there that we have, we have, we just don't have easy access to. There's not a mechanism to process, synthesize, and deliver that, being able to pull that information as easily as it is, like you said, uh, by going to Google. So, all right, we're going to move on to the fourth item. Uh, I like this one a lot as well. It's essentially uh, you know, secondary leadership positions uh, at the company level and below. So you've got an assistant company commander, assistant platoon leader, and even an assistant squad leader. Uh, why is that especially uh, useful in an urban environment? Yeah. So it's almost like you tie my third day and my fourth day together. If you think about the information requirements, um, the complexity of the environment and the complexity of the task that, you know, I write about, lots of people write about, you know, AI is the future and it will help us in the future. I just think there's major gaps today. Um, one of my favorite sci-fi movies or sci-fi books is called The Old Man's War. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, but in it, they basically put an AI in, in the soldier's head and the, and the soldier has this talk with the AI and the AI is able to, you know, kind of like the Iron Man's AI, give suggestions and make recommendations on the, all the different information processing that it's doing. But I don't think we're there yet. So I need Google War. But then even when I'm deployed in the urban environment for all these missions, I felt it. I think other soldiers feel it just based on uh, the complexity, like, like we were talking about. You know, and other, and this has been seen across time. Yeah, the American military has the, 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 the best leaders in the world, the most adaptive leaders in the world, and we have the leader development model, unrivaled in history. I think, you, you name it. But there's still, when we deploy them into these urban areas, the you can only ask so much of a human, and the complexity of the tasks that are being asked to be done. I think there is an amazing need for a subordinate level assistant to those leadership positions, especially in chain of command where decisions are being are required rapidly. The amount of information retained is, is much greater. Even the amount of information feeds that are going to the commander who's then expected to make a decision off of those feeds is growing. And we've seen like the Marine Corps, the example of Marine Corps uh, at the infantry squad level, basically where the rubber meets the road, they've added an assistant squad leader and they even added a squad kind of information manager who deals with kind of the drone feeds and all this other technology that we're giving is that we know that technology is 
the modernization way ahead and it will increase our capabilities, but there's a human element. And I think we exceed our, our human capabilities at times with cognitive overload and things like that. And an assistant would just be another mechanism to address that as we kind of move into the future. And it's been done across time. If you look back to different militaries, the British military, our military, this practice of having an assistant at that level, because right now we have them at the higher level, right? We have a deputy commander, but I, I'm saying at the tactical level, you, we, we're at the point where we need to look at that and then see what the implications are. I think it has lots of positives, even for leader development. If you have, you know, a, a, assistant company commander, senior captain who's training to be a company commander, but is also firsthand observing the challenges of that position and it's just another aspect of that person's professional development. Okay. Uh, so the next one, uh, the fifth day of Christmas, uh, is a pretty simple one. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested to, to uh, ask you why you selected this, but it's body and vehicle cameras, essentially, I guess, um, a GoPro on every soldier and a, a camera, maybe a, a you know omnidirectional camera on the top of every vehicle. Yep. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like, how do we not have this at this point where we'll see some really cool fo- um, GoPro footage of combat or something that it was just some personal soldier had had on them or in our soft community, it's kind of a regular practice, right? To have you know, the Bin Laden raid. You think of these things that have made news, even the recent Medal of Honor that we had on the al Hawija prison raid. There's a camera on the person, right? I think it's it would be... I don't know why that isn't with all soldiers deployed into combat environments for multiple reasons. Number one, the one that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a product of my experiences of the, living in, in an urban environment, you know, going out to patrol every day and that ability to sense around you was so important, especially, you know, for me, it was the counter IED aspect, but it was also about the, who you were interacting with, uh, what conversations were being had, the names that were being mentioned. And again, you're exceeding human capabilities to sense in this environment. We developed amazing, basically every soldier uh, sensor kind of capabilities and, and empowered our junior leaders and our, especially our soldiers. Uh, you're standing there, you should be observing and collecting, right? So they come back and they do a patrol debrief. And what did you see? Did you see any abnormalities and everything? And the one instance that, that happened to me was that we were driving down a road, you know, road we always drive down, and we didn't recognize a suspicious package next to a bus stop. Drove past it, came back, it exploded. It was a, a six array EFP, very deadly. Luckily, I lost nobody, but we were able to pay, play back GoPro footage that somebody had just stuck on the top, top of their Humvee and see that we had missed that abnormality. Um, and it really helped in our posts. Where was it originally? There, how there were civilians around it. Um, all this stuff that you know, gets missed. I think um, you know. Of course, naysayers will say, "Okay, great, you're collecting all this, but how are you using it?" So it creates. The, and you've done plenty of this about the full motion video capturing of aerial assets. If there's not somebody collecting and using it, is it worth it? Basically, because there's so many man hours. I think it's. It would it's huge um and then there's the information operations aspect of it right so being able to just like in our law enforcement it's amazing if if, if you know media or somebody plays back an instance said this is what happened and it spins with that and we're seeing strategic implications of that in combat 
well, if I can play you the, the footage and say that that's not what happened or this is what happened, it's a, it's a part of information warfare, which I think is very dominant today and into the future, especially in urban environments. Yeah, you know, um, the full mission video thing is, I think, is important because it, in 2017, I think there was something like 700,000 uh, hours of video sent back from CENTCOM. CENTCOM alone, just one of our combatant commands. That's something like 80 years worth of video. Uh, you can't, we can't, we don't have the human processing capability to do that. And so, which is why SOCOM particularly has been leaning forward with developing systems to be able to process this and exploit it. Um, so why not take advantage of those for the conventional forces as well? But beyond that, I think that there's also the usefulness that you talked about, um, you know, how useful video can be in, you know, for a tactical unit. When I record episodes of The Spear, our podcast on the combat experience, we've, um, I've had a number of guests who have told combat stories who are aviators, both fixed wing and rotary wing aviators. And as a matter of course, after a mission, they go back and sit down and watch the video of it. Yep. Uh, what do we do in the army? What is it? What does every squad platoon company do in the army after, you know, any major event, even, even less than major events, we AAR it. But the problem is, as you said, human, the human brain misses things and then it forgets things. So even if you AAR that mission right after it's complete, you're not going to get everything. So even if we didn't have a capability to analyze, um, process and exploit this kind of as a whole, this body of, of, of collected video, you can't tell me that a platoon would not benefit from having access to that so they could walk through what went right, what went wrong and what you want to do next time. So I think that it's one of the simplest items on your list, but I think it's also one of the ones that is kind of eyebrow raising that, yeah, why don't we do this? Yeah. I mean, imagine the training impact that this would have in increasing the proficiency of every individual as we are a collective organization and, and you're the training facilitator. You're like, okay, let's, let's pull up Sergeant so-and-so's video cam. What are you seeing at this point? Uh, It'd be amazing on all levels. Yep, I agree. All right, number six is a really interesting one to me. You said remote, persistent, on-call mentors. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so this is it's something I've been struggling with for a while. Um, you know, a couple again. You know, all my stuff is based on experiences or research or, hey, like that's a, that's pretty weird. So one of it, you know, it probably originally started with sci-fi, but when I when we went to Mumbai and studied the 2008 Mumbai attack, I was really awestruck to how these 10 individuals, um, if no listener knows, basically 2008 Mumbai was attacked by 10 terrorists who split up in the um, small two to four man cells and attacked different parts of the city with the intent to overwhelm the city and gain international attention to their purported cause, basically. Um, and they were only had a couple months of training, realistically. You could back that up. Let's say they had a year of training, every one of them. Yeah, you call them privates often. Yeah, I do. Because they were. They were privates. And imagine sending 10 privates in to do an attack like this. But the, what they had was they had satellite phone earpieces um, on a secure net back to Pakistan to what we know now were high-level military and intelligence operatives giving commands to these privates. Um you know, it was, it was very detailed for them on encouraging them to keep going, to do the tasks that they were told to do. You know, that's not necessarily a mentor. It's more like a, these guys were remote controlled from afar in order to increase their lethality. But they were, I mean, the, the precision of their operation was, you know, is wrong on the many levels, but it was very impressive from a military planning execution aspect. 
And then if you think back to that sci-fi book I was telling you about called Old Man's Warrior, they had an AI on his head. And through the book, he's he's communicating to this AI. He gives him a colorful name, but the AI responds to him when he's alone and has a question. I just think that it, it's something that could be practiced or at least experimented with, again, about this human complexity in urban environments to have somebody, um, we all know how powerful mentorship is, but usually it's, you know, it's not persistent. They don't know what we're going through or they don't, aren't there in the moment when they might be needed. Um, lots of different aspects. And there's another instance I had in my kind of research where I, I had a brigade level commander say, I don't need to deploy into theater. I can command from here. It, um, and there's been different kind of talks about it, but I can, I can command from here. I don't need to be in theater. It, it, it's, it breaks kind of the expeditionary highly adaptive model that we have, but it's interesting to think, why can't we provide this asset to somebody? Now, if you tie that to my body cams and the, so the mentor would have this access to passive observation of the challenges and mentorship has to be two way. It's a two way street, right? So I could have, you know, my own personal, I could have used somebody in the architecture, especially in, in company command of you know, just being able to say, Hey, this is, you know, how I'm struggling internally with this problem. And there's a mentor there remotely. Uh, it's a little, it's of all my items. I think it's a, it's the, the farthest kind of, well, um, I just think in the complexity of urban combat, it could have immense advantages on many different levels. And we have this whole resource, I think of military, even if like, if you only have a small contingent of forces deployed, but you have an army backing them, how could you aid in that, in that operation, depending on what the operation is. Right. So we don't want your know, helicopters stacked near the Vietnam or the drone stacked with a, with a, somebody in the chain of command in my ear going, Hey, tell me what's going on. You know, what are you doing? It, that's not what I'm envisioning. I'm envisioning something more passive and interactive with the actual individual. Yeah. You know, there's, um, my first question is, well, how is this different from, a from a commander in your higher headquarters? If you're a battalion commander and being able to call up your brigade commander, he's the one, he or she is the one that should be giving you, uh, giving you that guidance. But anybody who's ever been deployed knows that your commander always has way more going on. Isn't, isn't always available to kind of walk you through this stuff. And, uh, and likewise, they're not always available. They don't always have the time to give you career guidance, which is why we get career guidance from mentors, why we have this sort of separate category of people. Uh, so it does make sense, I think, to that extent, but if, given that this is a, a pretty, um, you know, say labor intensive or manpower intensive thing, cause you have to kind of collect and assign and have all these, uh, mentors, however formally you or informally you do that since we would probably only ever be able to generate a small number of them. Uh, so they couldn't, not every, you know, leader in the army or, 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 you know, even soldier in the army could have one. Um, how would you make the case that, okay, we should prioritize this for operations in urban environments? Yeah. I just think, as you know, I've argued on multiple levels that urban combat is the most complex, hardest environment that we'll ever deploy soldiers into based on the physical constructs so we know many leaders have said you know the the tough close urban fight is going to break apart units so it's going to be much more decentralized much more smaller formations executing larger tasks in the complexity of that physical environment which can you know the implications of the rules of armed non-conflict are intensified the implications of civilians in the environment that you'll be in interacting with are, are intensified 
and you know, basically understanding the environment around you is tensorfly. That's why I think if you were going to experiment with this, it would be in the urban environment because of the complexity that is the hardest environment to fight in. Okay. The next one is one that I think people who have followed your work for a while yeah. will maybe not be surprised by. Uh, seventh day of Christmas, you're asking for tear gas. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, I've written about this multiple times. I get a lot of people hate it. People love it. Um, I, from my long look at especially offensive and defensive high intensity combat or even crowd control, you name it. Um, tear gas is banned as a form of warfare for, for us military forces. We can, you know, it can be used in the United States in law enforcement, although there's problems with that but it can be used in civil disturbances under law enforcement, but we cannot use it in combat against enemy forces. You know, there's lots of exclusions to that in prison, in prisons, let's say abroad, or there can be presidential authorizations. But we signed this ban basically saying that we wouldn't use tear gas in combat against enemy forces. I think it's, I think the, the evolution of urban combat has shown that that is a mistake as we've seen especially in the last 10 years, these major fights over terrain where a defending enemy can easily get inside a fortified structure building, which there are many, and then hold it to where the amount of explosive force, as in artillery, mortars, you name the high explosive, even if it's precision guided, has intensified because they're getting inside these buildings, which are just bunkers. And we've seen across earlier urban combat where there was not this ban on tear gas, how effective tear gas is in just clearing a building so it doesn't have to be destroyed. Or let's say there's civilians in there and the the risk of not knowing what's in the building is lowered. And I think I put it in, in the article, the most recent example in the 2017 Battle of Moari, the Philippines military facing multiple high-level bunkers. The general who I was presenting with at West Point said, hey, I surprised them. I had a building full of a hundred enemy fighters and it was a daily fight to move an inch. So I tear gassed them and 84 of them came up with their hands up. Uh, that's a success tactically to, in my mind. And we as the U S military don't have that capability. Yeah. And so when I, I think you can, most people can understand, you know, the concerns raised the intuitive sort of, or the, the basic sense of, well, you know, that maybe we shouldn't be using this stuff. You know, humanitarians clearly, you know, humanitarian organizations clearly uh, often think that, you know, this shouldn't be used as a tool of warfare, but um, you know, I've heard you have this conversation with some of them and explain, you know, from a tactical ground combat perspective that look, this actually can help save lives, both combatants and non-combatants. It can, you know, it, it eliminates the need for collateral damage, dropping a 500 pound bomb on a building because, you know, there are bad guys on the ground level. Um, and it's been interesting to me, you know, I, I think that this is a debate that will be ongoing, but it has been interesting to me to hear some people's opposition to it sort of softened when you've explained that tactical perspective. Yeah, for sure. And there's, I mean, I get the counter argument. You have to understand the counter argument. Why was the ban imposed? Because we were abusing it in Vietnam and using it, you know, changing the properties. I mean, there, there's reasons why it's it was banned. I, I think in the evolution of dense urban combat, we need to rediscuss that. As we've seen cities completely destroyed, fighting against non-state actors using low-tech 
but defensive um, tactics. And our answer is, it's a tool. You took the tool tear gas away after Vietnam, so you've seen an evolution of the what you use in place of that tool. I, I just think it's a missing capability. Well, then on the eighth day, you asked for another tool that is um, some people will put on uh, in maybe the same sort of category. Uh, it's flamethrowers. Explain why flamethrowers are uh, an effective tool or a useful tool that you would like for urban warfare. So same reason. I need the ability to, to take away the defensive advantage of high-intensity urban combat from a combatant using the urban terrain to their advantage and really negating all the superior military force that I've built, paid for, trained, and developed. Flamethrowers across time have shown amazing capability to clear bunkers, which take a lot of blood and sacrifice to actually overcome without, without that risk. Also, limiting collateral damage. If I can clear a structure without flattening it, it's, it, it's another tool that in history, you name it, the Battle of Way, any major urban battle in World War II, flamethrowers, major proponent of clearing urban terrain without having to destroy entire structures or without having to pay a major price in your own forces, which then increases and changes the tactics when you have when you start to experience the tough fight of urban combat. Flamethrowers, both portable and vehicle mounted, amazing. Uh, capability for clearing structures and increasing, you know, decreasing the amount of time it takes to clear structures from Indian combatants using it as a fortified bunker. It's another tool that I think, and you, I think you know, you were at the same conference I was at where General Townsend, who was the the top commander of U.S. support to Iraqi operations, and especially in the Battle of Mosul, where he said at the end of the, you know, once the battle, that last week of the battle when the people that left were going to die in the place, how big of a fight it was to clear enemy combatants out of rubble. And he said, if I could have gotten my hands on flamethrowers, I would have, but I couldn't. I think that's a gap that is a capability that we need to have on call and quickly accessible. What do you think is stronger, the opposition to tear gas or flamethrowers? Oh man, it depends on the community. I think there's both. I think tear gas actually has a higher, because of the slippery slope to chemical weapons, you know, that's kind of the rationale. Well, if you allow, if you have two, you, you, if you allow tear gas, then you start to get in the slippery slope of different chemicals and chemical warfare. I don't agree with that. Or if I did agree with that, if you have an, an, a, you know, kind of just war tradition, you have a military with a strong ethical, legal, moral foundation that that's not going to be what happens. It, it's so it's almost using this previous eras of combat mentality of the slippery slope of chemical warfare versus flamethrowers. I think it, it was, you know, it was viewed as inhumane, but that, that is, I think another opinion that is lacking the context of these very specific urban battles and the, all the advantages that somebody can have from getting in terrain, holding it, making that in, in city as an organism pay until somebody can go in there and get them out. Okay. On the ninth day of urban warfare Christmas, you asked for winches on all vehicles. And this is something that I think might surprise some listeners because, you know, when you think about how much money we spent, even on a basic M1114, um, 
you know, you're talking $150,000 and that, that price quickly goes up for a, for a new, uh, a new vehicle. The MRAPs that, that we fielded and, uh, made in Iraq, uh, were half a million to a million dollars or more. And yet they don't all have winches on them. No, it is. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I mean, there's reason for it, right? Cause everything's about power, power transfer and, and what we've seen. And I'm no expert in this, but even our current model vehicles are, they're not able to keep up with the power requirements of everything that's being placed on them based on tech, technology evolution. So some of that, you know, winches take power and, um, I, I, but yeah, so I, I think even in all my combat operations in the two times I was in Iraq, I don't think I had a single winch on any of my vehicles. So the, the ideal for the ninth day was actually an underground warfare experiment where, you know, people dealing with the challenges of going underground and this, just the ability to get into the underground. So, you know, how much a winch, basically what they, one of the major findings was how much a winch would help, you know, with a unit and trying to develop different tech for that special environment, if we call it a special environment. Mm-hmm. But if, if I remember back to my own ur- dense urban combat, how many times I could have used it to move stuff. Um, I even, I put a tow cable on the door once because I wasn't authorized ballistic breach. So I just, I ripped it down with the tow cable. Um, there's so many instances as if you think about the challenges. So the underground was, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to get people into the underground, to get them out, to move, to get casualties out. But if you, you start getting into the, especially dense urban terrain, the ability to move stuff or your obstacles in your way. If you think about there's some, some major instance where there's, there's an obstacle in a way, there's just no way around it. So I'm trying to find a different way because I don't have, I don't have winch capabilities. I don't have, um, whether that's to rip a vehicle out of the way, uh, rip one of my own vehicles back to safety so I can do some maintenance on it. We, we don't have this. Yeah. Anybody who's seen, um, you know, photos from, uh, Mosul, Raqqa, Aleppo, any of the places where there was major fighting against ISIS will have come across pictures of burned out vehicles that were deliberately placed in the middle of a narrow street or concrete. In many cases, concrete that we left behind because we put up so many concrete walls uh, during the larger U.S. presence uh, in Iraq. Uh, and suddenly there are just these natural barriers. And, you know, you think for a, a, a very powerful military force, um, even if we are just advising the local force uh, and working through them, that's a pretty f- fundamental and primitive obstacle that we don't necessarily have something to deal with. So I found winches really interesting because we also think of winches as something that you use for vehicle re- recovery. But you're talking things like, um, you know, Kazavak, like you said, underground entry and exfil, uh, the, the list goes on and on. Yeah, it's like a, why wouldn't we have the Swiss Army tool on our vehicles? We we're adaptability is, is, is deep in our force design force structure. I think a simple winch on every vehicle would give you, there's so many applications. It's almost like a Swiss army tool, um, for use. Okay. So moving on to number 10, you asked for a lightweight, persistent smoke generator. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody who follows me too knows that this is, you know, kind of my, my squeaky wheel. Uh, I, I, especially in the close fight, but even in, um, we have a major smoke capability gap in our formations today. I, I, I truly believe that. Um, and I've done some, you know, some deep dives and you've edited some of those deep dives about whether you're a dismounted force or you're a mounted force, what is your ability to put up a persistent amount of smoke to conceal your position? 
is what do you mean by persistent? Yeah. So uh, let's say, well, you'd have to look at the So long term minutes, multiple minutes. And what are we capable of now with what we have? Yeah. So if you're an infantry, you know, dismounted, not even infantry, just a dismounted force in an urban environment, you have, usually you have a smoke grenade with you. It's kind of the, everybody gets one, you use it for signaling and you use it for concealment. You know, the average amount of time is what, 90, I think they said the book says 90 to 150 seconds. So about two minutes you'll get, if you throw it right and you get it in the right location. So if you're trying to cross the street in a tough fight, uh, you got 90 seconds to two minutes to get it billowing, cross the street, and and it's only going to smoke a little area. So if I was the bad guy and I, I would just shoot towards the smoke, um, you know, the other options are a smoke pot. So that gets the lightweight part. So there's a thing called smoke pots that can put up multiple minutes, like 20 minutes of smoke, which is great, especially if I'm really struggling to either do obstacle reduction or cross the street, you, you name it. Um, but a smoke pot can weigh up to 30 pounds. So who's going to carry that around? Uh, I think there should be some type of lightweight smoke generator. And, and in my mind, I thought through my own design method. So uh, you're not going to get rid of the hand smoke grenade. That's kind of a staple of all ground forces across, you know, World war one, war two, but why couldn't you have something, something lightweight, you know, uh, I'm thinking of some type of canister that weighs less than two pounds that you, you insert the smoke grenade into it ignites whatever surrounding in that canister and gives you 10 times the coverage and time of smoke. I just, for me, in urban operations, this ability to put up smoke is so lacking. And I think I put the one instance, and if I travel to some combat training events, we rely heavily on artillery smoke. Um, even artillery smoke has been depleted in our military kind of stocks. And at the one instance I gave in the article was in the 2017 Battle of Mosul, the artillery, U.S. artillery support to Iraqi operations, they were doing a major assault on a hospital in Mosul in order to rescue all the civilians that were being trapped in there. Um, and so they needed smoke to cross this four-lane intersection to get the forces you know, out of the danger area, out of the kill zone. They had no smoke in the, AO, the CENTCOM AOR to provide to the artillery, so they used white phosphorus. White phosphorus creates a lot of smoke, but it's also highly flammable and you know i mean it leaves a residue of burning white phosphorus it's and it's highly contentious politically uh we need we need smoke capabilities yeah i think the the fact that we had to turn to white phosphorus uh, because there was no other solution is is a pretty um telling indicator of what a gap there is uh in terms of smoke generation uh which which you know, you've made a pretty compelling case that it's really important, especially in uh, in cities and the open areas and cities. Okay, moving on to uh, our second to final list item, number eleven. You said dismounted remote firing stations. Describe what that is. All right. So I get abused a lot of times. Like, oh, you, all you do is talk about attacking offensive operation. What about defense? Rightfully so. And I've gotten a lot more questions as we think about different urban combat situations where a small force may have to enter the urban train and, and use it for all the advantages that I say are what the enemy uses against U.S. military forces, all the defensive advantages that urban train gives you, the pre-made military fortifications, the complexity, the ability to ambush. But one of the things that we don't have, which 
makes we should have, I think, is the ability to easily plop down a lightweight remote station. So we have some amazing remotely controlled systems on top of our vehicles. You know, the Crow system, if you're familiar with them, um, and other assets that give it. Just a lot of the new vehicles are coming with these remote stations on top of the vehicles to reduce the exposure for forces. But you think about a defense, you know, because we don't think about that much. Um, this ability to set up a weapon, even a lightweight weapon, an M4 or sniper rifle on a remote station, you know, away from your own forces that you could set up in the urban terrain and be a part of your defensive plan, your, whether it's your engagement area or your deception, you name it. Uh, we don't have that. And we've seen the enemies in these urban fights, again, if you had city watchers around the world, increasingly using civilian off-the-shelf technology to build these remote firing stations and it causing militaries a lot of trouble when they enter basically attacking that position. So why can't we have on the shelf these remote firing stations? Of course, you'd have to have a couple different weapons um, in order to put into the remote firing station that me as a you know tactical leader can then operate in a totally different location, uh, I think it would be such an amazing force multiplier. Yeah, I I think it's probably by definition the best example of a force multiplier because you can have a single soldier firing multiple weapon systems, controlling multiple weapon systems. It also has the effect, you know, the Ukrainians did this in Eastern Ukraine um, because when, when, when that conflict essentially devolved to trench warfare and there were artillery barrages, you couldn't, as a Ukrainian soldier, poke your head up out of the trench or out of the bunker that were buried deep underground to protect them from uh, from artillery. And so they essentially rigged up their own homemade versions of this, hooked it up to a laptop so they could they had a camera up there. They could see what they were firing at and could fire from uh, the safety of the cover that afforded by that bunker. And, you know, given the fact that it's possible to kind of make homemade versions of this, it seems that it would be, the technology is not, is not complicated. It would be a pretty easy thing to do. And so it's another thing that kind of, you kind of look at and wonder, I'm kind of surprised we don't have this already. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, right. We don't think about defense, I think enough, but even if I was the out four of a major training center, how many of these would I put out? How many sniper rifles would I put on high level ele- elevation? I mean, it would, it would be amazing. Right. Um, I think we need it ready today. And it's like you said, other people have quickly figured it out. I mean, I think we could do it better, lighter, um, more accurate. I know we could. All right. Uh, we are on to the 12th day of urban warfare Christmas. And your item on the list is urban training battle effects. What does that mean? So, right. So urban operations, probably the hardest, no, not probably. It is the hardest to to replicate, right? So pre- previous General Milley has said, you know, I want, you know, General Mattis even said it, uh, I want these bloodless battles, right? We we experienced training that prepares for combat. Urban, probably the toughest. Right now, we can only replicate about 60% of capabilities of a combat, brigade combat team at, a, at the major training events, these combat training centers, which are the world's best. Um, most of that's because we rely on miles, transmission, miles, and there is a new version coming out, which will be groundbreaking. I think it's amazing. I saw uh, an introduction of it at AUSA. I mean, it can shoot through leaves as a former long time ago, Op 4 for JRTC. You know, the ability to take that away from the game of training events. But what I want to do is expose soldiers to the complexity 
and challenges of urban combat in training events. The only way you can do that is you can if you can really simulate what's happening with their weapon systems. Can you shoot through a, a wall or do you think you just fired a 50 cal at a building? It did nothing to that you know heavy concrete reinforced building and nobody inside there's dead. Um, that's not what I'm seeing on the training environments. And it, also the fires. So I, you know, I did one a, a conversation recently on the second battle of Fusion. How much fires, you know, artillery and mortars plays into shaping operations. Um, in the current battle effects, I can't do that. I can't show you what's you know, what buildings are destroyed because of preparatory fire. I can't show you that. Okay, you're taking fire from a building, so let's call in some mortars. And then the mortars, you know, basically the battle effects simulation, let's say, let's say wrap a building with the vehicle miles inside and outside. So if it takes a certain round, it emits a transmission inside the building and anybody who's standing then gets hit by this battle effects. But if they're inside the building, you know, covered underneath a desk, you know, that maybe that mortar round didn't touch them. Um, that's the level of effects I want to see in urban combat training events, which are continuing to progress. And we have some amazing training, but this, I think this lack of effects to simulate the weapons, the effect of weapons on the enemy inside dense urban train to show the effects on the actual train uh, or to show the effects on civilians that may be present in the train. So, uh, the, you mentioned the conversation that you recorded about the second battle of Fallujah. That's with Lieutenant General Rainey, now Lieutenant General Rainey, uh, who was there and, and part of it. That'll be an upcoming episode uh, of this podcast. So for listeners that are hearing this but are not yet subscribed, be sure to do so so you don't miss that. Um, exist Right now we have what we, we call it MILES, um, Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System, I believe, um, which you know anybody who's been in a training environment in the Army will know. It's these big halo things with these big bubble sensors that you wrap around your helmet, a harness that you put kind of over your chest, and then something that you mount, a laser that you mount on each weapon system, and it requires line of sight so you can record, a, you know, air quotes, a kill. And the, uh, the target, if they're hit, you know, there's a little indicator that goes off and tells them you've been hit, you're, uh, you're out of the fight. You had, we didn't say this, we didn't acknowledge this in the early in the, in the conversation, but it does say so in the article, you limited yourself with the, on this list to items that are essentially the technology is already here for the most part, nothing, you know, far-fetched that you expect to have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or more into the future. Um, so given that we're still using miles, which we've been using for decades in training environments, uh, could you repurpose that to, um, to replicate these battle effects? I do think so. Either use the current version or the one that is going to replace it. I think you could if you start outfitting the building. So you really, right now, if you enter a lot of our high, you know, best urban training sites, they have these amazing sensors inside of them. They're called the sight, sound, smell, something emitters. So they, they try to replicate the environment. If you were just to rethink through battle effects using current mile system, so like I said, wrap buildings with miles that can be communicated because we have the ability right now to basically like if you you know if you're t you're like you're driving in an open vehicle in in the national training center and it takes artillery or there's an anti-tank round fired at that we can they can kill that vehicle remotely from a different building based on you know it's communicating they're amazing devices 
But let's say you wrapped a building, all the buildings, or at least in your dense where you think the big fire is, wrap them in that miles, wrap the inside with the miles, have a miles emitter. All this is capable. And then have a giant blinking thing on the outside of it. Um, you would, I think, increase the the battle effects to where it would not be as simulated. You could not, you, you as the opposing force, you couldn't just play the miles game or as the, the, you know, the blue force, you couldn't not see the effects or have to have so much personal adjudication of the battle effects. We need to get people to experience the true challenges of dense urban combat. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, this is the 12 days of Urban Warfare Christmas. Say we only get one day of Urban Warfare Christmas. Which item of the list uh, are you are you most hoping for? So understanding the, the 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 implications of certain wishes, like so the implication of a assistant squad leader, which I think is huge, and there is an experiment in the Maneuver Center of, of Excellence. I think is reassessing the infantry squad, you know, all the. But there, there's so many different, my own experiences, applications. I think the one that could be immediately implemented with high, low cost, high impact is the body cameras and the vehicle cameras. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for, again, agreeing to, to move to the other side of the table and play the role of guest and let me fill in for you uh, as, as host of your podcast. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I think this... Uh, as soon as you mentioned the idea that you might want to put together one of these lists, I thought we should do a podcast where we can really kind of expand it because, you know, the list is something like a thousand words and we just had a conversation for an hour about it uh, to really kind of dive into some of the details. And And I'm sure listeners will have enjoyed it and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, John. It's always um, great help to me that you do this and I really enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.